Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Constructs Inspect and Adapt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. As you know, we are a team of software engineering experts founded by legendary author Steve McConnell. And here at Constructs, we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. Speaking of value, join us today as we go down the rabbit hole and explore what we really mean when we talk about value in the context of what development teams create. To help me with some thoughts, I again engage Construct Senior Fellow Earl Beatty and VP of Consulting Jenny Stewart. They help me to explore this notion, talking about the types of value we often categorize, sometimes without realizing it, where organizations may struggle with this proper identification, proper vetting, for example, and to see how we make sure that the methods we use to surface it are correctly being deployed. We begin the discussion as Earl frames the conversation as being critically important to delivering good software. Let's listen in. The idea of value here, what I want to propose is, is that this is really a critical part of actually delivering good software. That if you don't understand the true value proposition of your software, you're not going to do a lot of things very well. Like you're not going to be able to prioritize very well. You're not going to get the feedback that you want very well. You're not going to be able to do the business cases that you want very well. It's all going to be a struggle because you really haven't identified the value. And we often mistake other things and declare those as the value. We mistake things like partial features as value or the beauty of the code as value. Hey, how do we go about really articulating, identifying, articulating value is critically important. And that's what I like to focus on today because I think we make some fundamental mistakes as we try to do that. Jenny? I am singing your song, Earl. I don't know how many times we get into conversations and people will argue over things like, is this feature more important than that? Or of these 25 features, which one or why are half of them all very high priority? And it's because there's nothing above that guiding us in making any sorts of value-based decisions. And so we get into the weeds a lot in areas that if we just stopped and started looking at it from a different point of view, maybe engaged in a different conversation, maybe looked at the problem from a different way, we'd come back and maybe we'd say, you know, all 25 of those are crap. It's a technical term, right? (laughs) What we really need to be going after is this thing over here. (laughs) One of the things I I think we need to start and, and frame this conversation a little bit is to understand what do we actually mean by value? This is what this is. This is actually lots of organizations even can't even articulate what value actually means. Um, and I think it's helpful to think of value in four broad categories. And they, people can have multiple of different amounts in each of these categories, but I think there's four categories that really make sense. And those categories are emotional, aesthetic, exchange, utilitarian. Now, the first two, emotional and aesthetic, we see a little bit of that in software. Emotional is, in, I have an emotional attachment to it. Usually it's sentimental. We've always done it this way. Or sometimes... It's, wow, change, cool, isn't that fun? Right? You see the extremes of this? We just want to do it because it's new and different. It gives me a rush. There's an emotional value, but we don't see that too much um, in software these days, except sometimes that sentimental one and maybe a little bit of change, but those tend to be the extremes. Aesthetic value is it's beautiful. It, one of our senses really loves it. It smells great. It tastes great. It looks great. And we used to get this. I remember in the 90s when we used to talk about, maybe you remember beautiful code, right? This code was just so beautiful. 
we, we valued it because it was so well laid out. The logic was so clear. It was so easy. It's, did it do anything? Who cares? Look how beautiful it is. Look how lovely it is. And, and so we, there was this big emphasis on beautiful code. I think that's still, that's not just a 90s thing. I think that's still around. Yeah, I don't hear it nearly as much. It used to be books and books and conferences about making beautiful code. And now it's just like, the AI will make beautiful code for us. <laughs> we won't have to worry about that much anymore. The aesthetic and the emotional value, we'll see that a little bit, but that's not what we usually see. What we usually see is a confusion between utilitarian value and exchange value. Exchange value says the thing itself doesn't give me value, but I can trade it for something I do value. Your uh, euro coin, your Canadian dollar coin, your US dollar piece of paper, that has exchange value. You can't eat it really. You can't drink it. It doesn't nourish your body. It's not even that pleasant to look at, but I can exchange it, that and some of its friends, I guess, for a coffee, <laughs> a sandwich. I can exchange it for something that does give me value. Exchange. And this is one that rears its head a lot on software projects because a lot of people say, oh, this is valuable because it really has exchange value. They've made a promise to deliver something within a certain period of time. And if they deliver it, they get their bonus, they get their credentials punched up, they get the respect of their peers. And if they don't deliver it, they're like, oh, what went wrong with you? Is the, the thing they're delivering actually useful to someone? Who knows? Who cares? But the delivery, I can exchange that delivery for something I do value, which is my bonus. So there's this exchange value that rears its head a lot on software projects. And the utilitarian value is the, hopefully the one that we really want to focus on in software because utilitarian is saying, are you doing something I need to have done? Are you doing a job for me? Are you solving a problem that I have or making an opportunity available to me that I wouldn't have had otherwise? What are you doing for me? And this is things like a sandwich that I exchanged that euro for. I got myself a sandwich. The sandwich gives me nutrition. It gives me energy that I then use to do other things. I it is something that solves a problem for me. When we think about value on software projects, when we look at the problems of prioritization, when we look at the problems of business case, we look at the problems of getting feedback, we've got to be looking primarily, I think, at this utilitarian value. Are you doing something on my behalf? And what are you doing it? And are you doing it in a way that I say, yes, that is actually an acceptable way of doing it, so I get the value, as opposed to doing it in a way that's like, eh, that's garbage. One of the things I think we've got to start with is they're saying, when we're talking about value in our organization here, are we talking about exchange value? You see exchange value listed in things like KPIs, OKRs. Those are typically exchange values. If you deliver this, we meet our goal. You're saying that's not market-driven? Well, I can deliver this and deliver crap. <laughs> Depending on how you shape them up, you can you can attempt to do them that way or do them that way. But I'd say most of the ones I see are more like what Earl's talking about. Deliver five releases to market in 2024. Right. Okay. What if those five releases don't have anything meaningful to my users, customers, or stakeholders? Who cares? Check. I delivered five releases. But we want that link of you want to go to market more often. We could see why that might be or valuable to the organization. And let's link it to what's valuable to your stakeholders or users as well. So Earl, on the exchange one, can you say that doing something for money 
is falls in that category. In other words, you have at end of quarter, somebody says, if you deliver this feature, this this particular client's going to buy 10 tons of our, our product. Right? That is maybe an exchange because you're doing something, not necessarily a gunpoint, but you're doing something <laughs> that maybe wasn't wasn't what you intended to do towards the end of the quarter, but because of financial pressures and whatnot, you do it. Sure. Yes, I think it's exchange value. And I think that you can say, when we deliver that exchange value, we should still have an idea of what the utilitarian value that they're willing to give us that money for. Because I would hate to, to deliver that, and all of a sudden they go, holy crap, this is garbage. <laughs> Stop. I'll never want to buy from you again. How do you prevent the, the not feature creep, value creep, what, what are you... You keep adding things for specific clients. Misalignment of values. Right, where you just have this enormous tidal wave of things that get added for money that don't necessarily align to what you might be doing on your own for the product development. You might have to do things all the time because of that. Particularly maybe smaller companies, newer companies who are at, at a point where they're trying to establish themselves and need to generate revenue, so you do things like that. And I think there's a danger there, I think, of saying this is valuable when it really is a money, it's a money transaction. Well, I don't think they're exclusive. Okay. I think you can do both at the same time. Because I, I think one of the things that product management needs to earn its money doing is saying, I understand the utilitarian value this is giving. Can I get more money solving this utilitarian, delivering this particular piece of utilitarian value? Or can I get more money solving this other utilitarian value with the same set of resources? I have a finite pool of resources I can use. Which utilitarian value, if I solve, brings me the most exchange value? This is the tightrope that product management should be walking. Unfortunately, I see them often focusing only on the exchange value mm -hmm. and not ever delving and understanding the utilitarian value that's along with it. And there might even be some... Aesthetic value, can we make it pretty? Can we make it more appealing? Can we make it easier to use? And there might be some sentimental, oh, what a nice throwback. That makes me feel young again or something. <laughs> you could throw some other values in there too. You're, you're not, there's only not like one value something can have. But the question has to be with software, if you're going to build software well, if you want to do a good job prioritization, you've got to understand the utilitarian value and then attach the exchange value to solving that problem. Will we get more money or not from doing this? Uh, let's step back one step here, Earl. Who who gets to make the decision? Who's at the table? Who's responsible for for finally determining what gets in a, a feature set or what gets in a, a what's shipped to the market? Is that solely product marketing? I want to put Jenny in the hot seat for this one because she's really good at that portfolio level, and I want her to take first crack. There you go. Who gets to decide <laughs> what that is? Well, I'm going to give a little bit of the consultant's answer because it does depend a little bit on the size of your organization and the type of people around. If you're a small little shop with visionary founder, it's often that one person who's visionary, who's really saying, here's the direction we're going, here's the value, here's the customers that I think we're going after, here's what we're doing. It can be as little as one person. In a large, complicated organization, you are often looking at a portfolio management process, which is obviously going to include product managers, but also needs to have some seat at the table for technical people. As our lovely friend Eric Simmons used to say, you can bring me a beautiful idea to build a flying carpet, 
And that probably has an enormous marketplace, but it's technically impossible. And so we need to be vetting some of these things through the portfolio process to make sure there's a seat in the market for it and there's technical viability for it. Then the other piece that's usually sitting there is also the usability aspects of it. Um, Early in that pipeline, we're probably thinking about what persona is it providing value to and what is the use case, user scenario, job function, value path, as Earl likes to call it. What's that person going to get that's beneficial from this thing that we're talking about? And this is where usability experts, if they're doing their job well, not just being UI designers, but actually usability experts, will start talking about the customer journey through your Mm -hmm. product. What are they doing beforehand? What are they doing as they do it? What do they do afterwards? To make sure you understand the utilitarian value that your product's bringing market. And good usability folks are worth their weight in gold, in my opinion. One of those things I've noticed over time is that Jay and I will see these roles, a good usability person, a good product owner, you could put them sort of in that camp, a good product manager, they're worth their weight in gold. Because it turns out, though we see these titles often in organizations, that good people are seen to be a lot rarer than we expected. <laughs> oh, boy. And this is just to poke fun at one of our coworkers, Steve Talkie, he's really into modeling. And modeling is wonderful. It's great. But you know what? The population of people that can model well is lower than we expected. There's these great skills that if you've got a good person, you're actually way ahead of the game than if you've got a normal person. Again, I think it's one of those things where the tail is long of, of goodness and the hump of where most people are is like, eh. I don't know about you, Earl, but I've seen a lot of situations where you'll be looking at things at the portfolio level or at the program level or even at the team level, and there's a seat at the table for product managers, and there's a seat at the table for the technical folks, but the user experience community is maybe completely missing from that organization. They're just, they're not there. They've never vetted. They've never hired. They've never looked for. And that triadic set of input that I want when we talk about value What's the user going to get? Does this make sense in our market? Is it technically feasible? I want those three elements all coming together to say, yes, this feature, this idea, this concept, whatever you want to call it, this is a good idea. And by the way, it's a better idea than the other ideas sitting at the table. (laughs) So it gets to move forward first. I want all of those voices looking at that. And so, Mark, to your question, who makes a decision? And Jenny's consulting answer, it depends, right? <laughs> These are roles that need to be filled, whether fulfilled by one visionary or a team. You need someone who's looking at the business side, the exchange value. What's, what's going to be a return if we can deliver this kind of thing? We need someone looking at the utilitarian value. This is what is the actual job being solved and how well do we have to solve it to say we've actually solved their problem or delivered the function, whatever that they need to have. And we also need that technical aspect of well saying, is this even possible given the technology we have at the price point that the exchange value is going to make sense to deliver that utilitarian value? Did I get that right, Jenny? Yep. Sounds right to me. (laughs) Although, you know, you keep saying utilitarian value and there's a part of me that's like, it's not utilitarian. It is the value. It's the value that by being able to solve my problems, I don't buy your software because it has feature X, Y, and Z or widget Y or UX alpha. I buy it because I want to get something done. 
I want to take my photographs off of my camera and get the best result I can from them to make them as beautifully as they possibly can be. Which product is going to help me do that in the way that works best for me? I totally agree with you. And at the same time, I know that I've seen people buy things based upon aesthetic value. Yeah. Wow, doesn't that look pretty? Isn't that interface look lovely? I have no idea what it does. God knows that half the purchases of off-the-shelf software for businesses where they just say, we have these features and look at our interface. They're like, wow, that's nice. You must know what you're doing. They bought it on the aesthetic value, not on the actual utilitarian value because they never tested it if it actually solves any of their problems. They're just like, that looks pretty good. Let me throw another rock in the middle of the pile here. What happens What happens if, I don't know where that came from. What, what happens with the notion, value is not static. You could potentially decide something at very early stage of the project and somewhere down the line say, you know what, this isn't really not where we are. This is probably not the highest value we could ship. Or things can change over the course of time where a decision you made doesn't work. What's the resolution process for that? Should you be worried about those kind of things where you make a decision and you lock down and you go and all of a sudden you realize, you know, this release is not going to have a whole lot of value to our market. Does that, does that, does that happen often? Is that, a, is, that, is that a significant issue? I will point out right now that I think our track record as human beings is guessing the, <laughs> what other people's values are is pretty Uh-oh. darn poor. Uh-oh. If we could actually understand other people's values very well, things like every movie would be a blockbuster. Every shoe would sell a million copies. We are horrible at it in general. So the question I think is better is not what happens when things go wrong is do you have a process in place to understand and vet whether your decisions that you think that are the value proposition, the utilitarian value or even the exchange value are correct? What, how quickly can you learn that those are right or wrong. I think that's the more appropriate approach and assume that our understanding of the value proposition is pretty darn poor. And Earl, I think here you're getting into things like minimum viable experiment via compared to minimum viable product. What's the smallest thing I can release to get an experiment? And heaven knows Earl and I have spent enough time around next-gen projects where people say it'll take us two, maybe three years to build the next generation of this, and we get invited in in year three or four. There's kind of no end in sight. And that's actually kind of, I think, a classic example to talk about value, because the way people often go into those projects is, oh, just build me what we had before. Plus some new things. Oh, yeah. And while you're at it, could you also? (laughs) Yeah, it took us 10 years to build the previous thing. Can you rebuild all that in two years, plus some new features that we've never, we're not quite sure of what they even are yet. Exactly. And really what you want to be saying there is, okay, all of the functionality in our software isn't used at the same level. All of the jobs that people want to get done aren't equally important. All of the stakeholders that we want to go after may not have maybe opportunities to either take people who are maybe not particularly happy with our solution and give them something that makes them really happy or maybe enter a new marketplace because we're not there. And so instead of just building this monolith that I'm going to release in 
three years or five years or maybe cancel because the thing just gets completely out of control. To Earl's point about value and verifying value as we go, instead, he and I are always recommending, and correct me if I get off on some weird tangent you don't agree with, Earl, we're always recommending thinking about, okay, which user class do you want to go after first? Who do you want to give utility value to first? Who's the one that you're going to make? What jobs even of that customer? Yeah. And then what jobs for that customer do you think are most important? Things that either they can't do today, that they could use the old system, and then they'd, they'd go use the new system to do something because it's so much easier, or they just couldn't do it before, and they can run it parallel, or you're going to release something that just absolutely engages somebody in the organization who wasn't using your old system, and then incrementally release these small elements of value. Oh, and by the way, if you then thought that this was going to maybe make somebody really happy and it didn't, you know that maybe three months instead of three years? <laughs> three years, yeah. <laughs> and then you speaking. Hypothetically. Yeah, you know, and you'd think... In the world we live in, where Agile is kind of the default way that people produce products now, you'd think, well, duh, of course we'd all do that. But we don't. Because <laughs> we get into this, you know, I need to have an MVP. And so you need to rebuild me all of what that thing was before. Not only when we think about value, do we need to be thinking about what the value is. But to Earl's point, we need to be thinking about how can we release small chunks of value and maybe that's a system that runs in parallel with our current system. Maybe that's a system that runs in a test ecosystem so people can try it out. But how do we get that in front of people? Because we think we're right, but we're human and we're going to make mistakes. And we want to learn and then we want to pivot and course correct from those learnings. And then we may look at the list of things we thought we'd do next change some of those, reprioritize those based on this learning. Mark, to your initial question, this should be something where it is an ongoing learning opportunity that's happening all the time. And I think when people talk about things like agile portfolio management, they are thinking about this is something that's living and breathing and we are learning and we are changing. We make our best assumptions, our best plans, our best guesses, but then we should put in place structures that allow us to validate those and learn and change as we go. I, I'm going to piggyback on Jenny there and add, whenever I teach people, whatever you see the word minimum and any of those kinds of words, minimum thing, it's not about what your final deliverable is. It's about your speed of feedback. So even MVP is how small a product can we build that we can get some feedback on, not what's my final deliverable that I'm trying to beat you down into because it's too big and you want too many things. We do have a comment here from Jason who shares a nice, uh, an interesting story about changing software on a couple of medical devices so that they match. And that way that hopefully there is some, hopefully, is it changing the job? No, the utilitarian value is roughly the same, but it might be changing the learning, making it easier for, they, for technicians with less experience to do that. We change some of the how well we do the job hopefully making it easier for people to do the job because I don't have to learn two different UIs. They can learn one UI and run two different systems. That says to me, it's like, well, the same job is the same, but I'm, I've changed the how well we can do it. And a lot of times when you were talking about value here, which is, I think, really fascinating, it's not a new job. It's not a new function. 
I always love the joke that on my iPhone 15 Pro, which is now outdated because it's been out for four months <laughs> or whatever, there's always now an S24 that's newer and better from Samsung. But there's not a function on this phone that has not existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. What can it do? Talk to another person? Capture an image? Cavemen did that. There's no new functions, but what has changed is how well it does those functions. It's made it more convenient, more portable, more accurate, more reliable than my other options have given me over time. Is it still as good as a good DLSR? No. But is it good enough since it's with me for some situations? Yes. yes. It has its niche. It's solving certain problems that I have better than my alternatives, which is lugging around a bigger camera all the time. My bigger camera takes some much better photos, but it's a pain to lug around all the time just in case I want to capture something that happens to appear in front of me. But it's doing the same function. And so a lot of people understand that our value proposition isn't so much a brand new function, but it's solving that function better than the alternative solve it. And when you're talking about better than the alternatives, you're talking about those things like reliability, maintainability, extensibility, security, portability. All these illities are often about how well we do it. I can't recall the last time something invented a brand new function that no one wanted to do before, but either it was too hard, so we didn't bother. I mean, I'll think of AI. AI is not doing anything new. It's taking stuff we used to do and think about and just making it faster by combining lots of learning from lots of things that we did do. Is it doing a new function? Stealing content. <laughs> it's really good at it. I was able to steal content in grade school. That's what the Encyclopedia Britannica was to me. It was the content oh stealing source. <laughs> we were at Funk and Wagnall's house. So that's how old I am. What are the most common ways that you guys have seen people use to help identify values? If you have existing product and you know you're making refinements to it and, you know, the illities, et cetera, you, that, I think those things are kind of maybe easy to see, see. But when you're doing something greenfield and you're trying to evaluate that, what ways do you, you do that? Is it modeling? Is it, you know, what, what kind of things do you see out there that are most common? I have my ways. Jenny has ways that she likes to use as well. Uh, I'll start out with one of mine. Maybe Jenny can share one of her favorites. For me, my favorite one is a form of requirements modeling called the context model. What I want to do is I want to draw a box and say, this is what I'm being asked to build. My my team, whether my team is an individual team or a collection of teams in a scaled framework of some kind, but here is what we're being asked to build. This is the box that we're being asked to build. And so what is outside this box that's asking us for something? I'm working with a large company right now in the entertainment space, and it's like, okay, we're, they're drawing the box, and we identify the things on the outside that interact with the box. And say, I asked the box for this, it gives me this back. I asked the box for this, it gives me this back. Time happens, and the box gives this other thing. And so these are the jobs, the utilitarian value propositions. And then we have to figure out how well we have to do them. And as we rebuild the system, this is one of those next-gen systems kind of things. Okay, let's find one job and do that job better. Let's find this next job, make sure we understand that job, and do that job better than the previous alternative could do it. So I like to start with this thing called the context diagram. It has a box. Outside the box are the things that interact with you. They could be humans. They could be other systems. 
I've done this with components where it's like our box is just one component and all the other components are other things outside of our context. What are they asking us for? What are we sending to those other components? What is your box? And you may be a box within a bigger box. That happens. And it's nice to know that too. So that's what I start often with. Jenny, you do, you, you, you are nodding your head and you might do context diagrams, but you also have other things you like to use. I do. And one of the things I often like to start with, I think, leads into your context diagram, which is a little bit of a conversation about the stakeholders and who our stakeholders are and what kind of different classes of stakeholders that we have. Is there a different maybe customer, the person who purchases our product versus the user? person who's actually going to be hands-on keyboard using our product? And then are there also maybe other partners or that kind of thing? So building some sort of stakeholder model or stakeholder map, I think is incredibly important. And then also, I don't typically want to make every single stakeholder super happy every single release. So some amount of, to Earl's point, prioritization. One of my favorite quotes that I stole from an SVP I worked with before is he believed in the power of ruthless prioritization. That sounds like fun. <laughs> well, one of the great product management sayings is that for any given function, when you have multiple classes, stakeholder classes using it, you can make one cl- stakeholder class happy, the rest you try not to make upset. Yep. Because if you try to make them all equally happy, you get mush and no one likes it very much because there's conflicts. I will say one of the things that I really love, now I don't have the background to build these, but if I'm in an organization and they exist, I am always super happy. It's personas, where I actually have a representation of kind of my key my preferred stakeholders or my preferred user classes with a description that describes that person in really great detail. It's not, I have an inventory manager or a clerk or a store partner or that kind of thing. I have Sally or Venkesh or Richard. There's a picture, there's a person, there's a description of what their background is, their focus is. And I've been in places where that becomes incredibly useful and we can even start talking about, I know Earl doesn't like the feature word that much, but we can start talking and and characterizing features as what is Joe going to get from our system when we build it? And so now I'm very, very grounded. It's not, you know, build me an Oompa Loompa. It's Joe's going to use an Oompa Loompa to cuddle with because it makes him happy. (laughs) Okay. I don't mind features that way, but I think that's not a way a lot of people use them. It's true. It's not a way a lot of people use them. That That, that is fair criticism, Earl. Once I understand for either the stakeholder values what the Oompa Loompa cuddling feature was going to be, <laughs> or from my context diagram, um, what that main transaction is, the next thing I like to build what is what I call a product vision. Other people might give it a different name, but I name that core function. And then for that stakeholder class, I like to take those illities and put them into one of three buckets. And the three buckets are positive value, negative value, and no value decision. Positive value is saying, when I do this function, what am I judging you by? What am I watching you say, yes, you're doing this better than my alternatives. These are the ones that I'm paying attention to. For Jenny's case, where she was talking about getting photos off her camera into a different device, 
It could be speed and portability. These are the things that really make a difference to her in solving her problem. Is it small, compact, yet gets them off really quickly and puts them in the other place? And then those are the ones who'll judge positive value on. And so the more of it you have, the more they're going to go, yes, I love it. The negative value ones, the negative value ones are ones that, as long as you do an okay job, no one's going to judge positive value. So let's say that the color of Jenny's device, right? As long as it's not awful, I don't care. <laughs> but if you make it butt ugly, I'll give you negative value. <laughs> Maybe crash protection on a car. Like if I got decent crash protection, I'm not buying a car before it's crash protection. But if you're just going to kill me every time I get a fender bender, I hate you. I will make negative value judgments if you screw it up, but I will not make positive value judgments like if you do better on it. So if you spend a lot of money hitting these negative value areas, I'm not going to spend more money. It's not going to get you the exchange value because it's not that important to me. Only if you screw it up will I be pipped. Comfort of a chair, for example, is another one. That chair at a meeting room has to be reasonably comfortable, but it doesn't have to be lazy boy comfortable. But a chair from my home, different story. So I got positive value, I, things that I'm actually watching to say, is this important of the illities when I do this function? Negative value, if you screw these up, I'll be pissed, but otherwise investing on here doesn't make a lot of sense. And then there's a third category. It's like, it's not even on my value radar. I'm not even making a decision one way or another. I love to use the example in class of two different cars, a Rolls-Royce Phantom and a Honda Accord. Maintenance costs on a Honda Accords might be in the lead column, the positive value. The lower you have my maintenance costs, the happier I'm going to be because this is why I buy a Honda Accord. I don't need to do an oil change for the first 100,000 miles kind of thing. Whereas a Rolls-Royce Phantom, the maintenance costs are probably in the I don't even notice that I have maintenance costs. If I can afford a Rolls-Royce Phantom, a $500 or $2,000 oil change is meaningless to me. I don't care. It's not even something I would make even negative judgment about. If I could afford this vehicle, I don't care. It's not even something I would judge and make a judgment value about. I get them to put them into those three buckets, positive value judgment, negative value judgment, and no value judgment. And that we can start seeing that different classes are going to sort those illities for the same function differently. And so to Jenny's point, we have to know who we're going to make happy. Am I going to make the Accord person happy or the Phantom customer happy? Who, who am I going to try to do with the product I'm building that has that core function of, say, of a car going from A to B? Well, it sounds a little bit next level down from what I often think about as a vision, which is something a little more high level, something a little bit like an elevator pitch or a lean canvas that kind of gives you your, who am I competing against and why am I the preferred choice for them over that? So it sounds sounds like you're doing it in a bit more of a finer level of granularity than many people will talk about. It's a more more detail because it's the same way I write any requirement. I treat it as a requirement. But you could do the same thing with an elevator pitch for who's the customer. The, that's the name of my product, uh, is a, here's the core function. And then the that, here's where I can start talking about those illities. That is faster. That is cheaper. That is more reliable. Yeah. Then my next alternative. So you got the same content roughly in the elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. You got the same rough content in the design the box when we used to have boxes. I don't even know why we even talk about design the box. It's gamification. I, I actually switched it in my material to design the web page. <laughs> I'm actually thinking that it could be complementary. The elevator pitch could still be kind of its thing where it gives you the overview and then yours actually plugs in as yeah. a much more 
concrete value test against which I could throw my features and say, here's how I test it to see. Because one of the things we always talk about with good vision is it should allow you to say no to things. Often just that elevator pitch, it's helpful in that. But I think that's why some people do the lean canvas, because there's more there that can allow you to say no to things. But I actually think those two things could dovetail pretty nicely as the big picture. I think you're right. I think it's the elevator pitch will be easier. I've done that in classes and seen groups working on the same product. I come up with different elevator pitches. Like, are you really working on the same product? Yeah. It doesn't look like you are. You have different customers, different key things that they're going to focus on. And my approach dovetails well with Tom Gilb's language yeah. and value planning. Because mine will be able to, I'll put it, be able to scale on all those things, talk about the amount of investment, look at design impacts. I'm trying to meet those, given the technology. You, you, you take it a lot further. But the elevator pitch is something that you can use to quickly diagnose a team to say, do, are, do we even think we're working on the same product? Yeah, it's actually kind of a fun one to ask if you get the sense, and Earl and I have been in a few places where we have gone and worked with different teams around the entire organization and everybody had their little kind of baby vision, but nobody had the big picture vision. If you think the vision's missing, it can be a fun thing to have a bunch of different people working on the same product, write an elevator pitch and see just how very how much it varies and it shouldn't. <laughs> right. right. Uh, and then you can come together and actually write an elevator pitch together. But I think Earl taking to that next level and doing something like you're talking about or doing the stakeholder quantification a la Gilb kind of stuff is really helpful in saying, okay, I have this big picture, but now how do I take that to that next level of detail so that I can really validate these ideas or epics or features against something really concrete? Is this going to increase my reliability? Yes, no, maybe. Is this going to increase ease of use? Yes, no, maybe. Is ease of use more important for this release right now? And why is ease of use more important? We think people aren't using it because we think it's hard to use. Okay, let's build a couple things we think make it easier to use. Let's test that. If more people don't start using the system, maybe we have the wrong hypothesis. And you can use things like, I know, Jenny, you like to talk about impact mapping yep. as a tool to help find things that I would put in my value positive versus value negative. And that's really interesting because in my, when I use the value positive, these are really expensive. Value positive things we're going to make significant investments on and use our cutting edge technology on because if we were just standard, it would be in a value negative. Don't screw it up. Just be as good as everyone else. That's sort of a compete level. This is the lead level. This is where we have to be the best to be better than all the alternatives. So we got to use our best technologies and invest a lot to make sure we nail this. This is our sort of brand, if you will, to a certain degree of these positives. You can't shove everything up in there. We want to be leader in everything. It's like, okay, that's going to be expensive and take forever and you'll never deliver and you'll be frustrated. What is it? The few things, and this is where the impact mapping things like, where can we make these hard decisions? And this is, this is where I think a lot of organizations get in trouble with value is they want to be value for everything, for everybody. I've, I've been in companies like, okay, who's your most important customer? Oh, we got to make them all happy. Really? How's that going to work out for you? All at the same time. All at the same time with one release, with one interface. It's like, really? 
One of the exercises we use in our requirements class is a little task analysis where we have people who are booking airline reservations over the web for personal travel and a professional travel agent. And one of the things you learn quickly is that if you gave them the exact same interface, one of them is going to shoot you. <laughs> the travel agent knows all the codes, just got to bang things out, want to go fast as possible, where the casual traveler wants to go, is this right? Is this check? Walk me through this. Make sure I understand this really well. Help me make stop dumb decisions like doing a 20-minute uh, connection in Atlanta. You know, just don't do that. <laughs> don't make that happen. Actually, a 20-minute connection almost anywhere on this planet is a really bad idea. Really understanding that you can do the same thing, book an airline flight, we have them do it, but you can see that they need entirely different experiences because they are different customers with different needs, even though they're doing the same function. And so, but we see this all the time and no one's making the hard decisions about who we're going to make happy for what particular function. That's actually one reason I've been such a fan of story maps. Because when you build a story map, usually I'm doing it by user class. Who is the first most important user to make happy? That person goes up first in your user map. Who's the second most important person to make happy? Okay, now who's... Or class. We say person, we should say class. Class, user class. Because yeah, it doesn't have to be a person. It could be something. What's the most important workflow, job, function, value, feature that they want to do and explicitly going through and mapping those out can be insanely useful. I did that with a group once who was maybe 25% of the way through the project. And when we looked at it, we realized that the bulk of what they were working on was not at the front of the map. So, Mark, to your point, do you pivot? Yes, you pivot. You start working on the stuff that's at the front of the map. I was at a large manufacturer of automation, and we did that with the team. Uh, story map, did the elevator pitch kind of stuff, some user story mapping kind of thing. And they realized that half the team was working on one product and the other team was working on a related but slightly different product. They weren't, they weren't going the same direction, and they were wondering why they were having such hard integration problems. Okay, when you're working on two entirely, you know, not radically different, but fundamentally architecting different, emphasizing different things, de-emphasizing other things, it's going to be hard to bring this sucker together. In a perfect world, we would have all of this defined before you kick off a particular release, a particular project, a new product development effort. But Now is always better than later. I've worked with companies who were kind of halfway through year-long projects, and we had to go in and completely rethink and reorder everything based on a more clear vision of what we were trying to do and what the priorities really were, and then make some really hard choices to thin some things out. But all of a sudden, you go from a one-year project that was probably going to take 18 to 24 months to release to a one-year project that they released after about 14 months. You can still do some pretty amazing mid-course corrections if you're looking around. And I know both are old and I have done that before. You get in, you start working with people and you're sort of like, wow. If you're halfway through, you ought to have half the value. I was helping one medical device company a a couple years ago and I was helping the product management side and, and the project leader and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do to the team. Here's how we're going to set up your thing. We're going to measure you and your success by value past delivered. Not how much you built, not how much code you've written, not how beautiful the code, not all the problems you solved. 
did you deliver these value paths? And we expect these value paths delivered at these different safe PI increments. They were doing a, a safe implementation. At the second PI, they still had out of expected about 40 or 50 value paths delivered, they had delivered one. And they were trying to say, look at all the stuff, look at all the enabling stuff we built. And we responded, I don't care. Your job is to deliver value to our business and you've delivered almost none. And they wiped the leadership out and put a new leadership in because they've got to get the message clear. Your job is to deliver value, not to make cool technical stuff for cool technical stuff's sake. Got to deliver value. Sounds like a way to delay MBOs. Two PIs, you ought to get me some value. You know, maybe I'll give you the first one for higher levels of enablement, lower levels of value paths, but... Yeah, we didn't come down hard on the first one. You better give me at least one that first PI, and the second one you should be humming along and give me a, a good click of them. But the issue here, and this is one of the things that I think a lot of people confuse features with value to a certain degree, is that they keep thinking, I need to build entire features. Features often take a long time to build it in their entirety. The medical device I was working with, I love to tell the story, is that they had a feature that was going to take 11 months. And so we couldn't get any use until we finished the feature, and that was going to take 11 months. too long. But for one use scenario, one interaction, for that one interaction, one scenario, we can get you something in three weeks. Whoa! We can actually get one part of this product working in three weeks so we can get some feedback on if, if, if we're even on the right track of guessing about what our value propositions are. That's a huge win. But we have to build partial features often to deliver value, not entire features. Now, when Jenny talks about a feature being that interaction, stuff like that, yeah, we have to deliver the whole thing. Yeah. But if you think of feature as a set of components necessary to do exercises within it, then we can say we, we only need to deliver often partial features and string those partial features together to deliver something of value to the feature that kind of Jenny likes to talk about, which is that interaction doing something yeah. to give me the oopa loopa cuddling, I think it was. I would probably be like <laughs> 11 months for a feature. Uh-uh, we got to talk about what you mean by feature. <laughs> yeah, that's what we had to do. But I mean, ultimately, I think what both Earl and I want to do is we want to say, build me small slices. I don't care what you call them that actually provide something that's meaningful to some stakeholder of the system that they can get something accomplished with. And let's do that in short bits based on some definition of what value means to our product and our organization so that we can calibrate project progress, we can get feedback, we can make sure that we are actually accomplishing what we thought we were going to accomplish in terms of customer satisfaction or ROI or whatever we're trying to go after. I think we may use different language, Earl, but I think we sing from the same yeah. book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because when we talk about value identification, I mean, that was the topic of this whole discussion, is that we need those different parts. We talked about the three parts that we need to really get value well. We need to understand the utilitarian value. There's something to focus on that, the UX person like that. We got to understand a little bit of exchange value so we, so we can say, okay, which one of these gives us the best exchange value given if we solve this utilitarian problem. And we need the technology people to say, is it even possible? Do we have the technology to hit that level, to drive those areas that people are going to say, oh, you're doing this better than my alternatives at a price that I'm willing to pay. It's, it's, all three of those have to be there. But because we're such bad guessers typically at this, that we don't do a great job of, of really understanding our fellow human beings that well, we need that rapid feedback to say, are we getting it even close? 
Because if we go a year, two years, three years, we'll never get the product out and actually learn if we hit it out of the ballpark or not. So we got to do those little steppy things. It's interesting. The more we talk about this, the more I think about Agile circa 2001. I mean, the goal was short iterations, close to our customer, value, feedback. In some ways, it's it's a little depressing, honestly. <laughs> We're having this conversation in 2024. I do believe the fact that more of the industry has gone to a more incremental model where the feedback loops are there allows us to close the gap more quickly when there is a gap. But what this says to me is there is still a big gap between that promise and what we as an industry have done to deliver on that promise. And it's fundamentally because value is around solving real problems That's right. outside of your team. And we don't think that way as human beings. We think in terms of solutions for the most part. And so we go in and organize our project, organize our teams around solutions, and even the teams around solution bits. Our team works on the UI level. Our team works on this thing. Our team works on that thing, as opposed to our team solves a problem. We organize ourselves. We think in terms of solutions. We organize, organize ourselves in terms of solutions. And we often forget to think value is are more closely associated with solving problems than with building solutions. That's right. I would completely agree with that. If I could leave like one little nugget on the table we haven't really talked about yet, my favorite thing, maybe this makes me like a fifth grader at heart still, but is to go in and ask why. People will give me features and I'll ask why. <laughs> And there's this technique and requirements called five whys. You ask why up to five times to try and get at the root. And I actually think most organizations, most projects, most features that they have could benefit from a good solid five whying to get to the real, what am I really trying to accomplish? What is somebody else really trying to accomplish with this? They don't come to us with problems. They come to us with solutions. And one of the pitfalls is we just take the solution and say, oh, here's the solution, instead of saying, okay, what's the real problem that we're trying to solve here? Let's get to the root of that. Let's start to use that. Think about five whys for what your project is currently doing and see if you can link that to something that has meaningful value to some stakeholder or user of your system. And don't wait for your leadership to do it for you. This is one thing I come to a team and they're struggling. I ask them, what's the value, true value? We try to do that. They, they don't know. They've never been told and they're not getting the answer. And so I encourage them to do a process I call backfill. We're going to make up what we think the value is. So, so at least as a team, we're coherent. We'll take that and present it up to leadership and say, hey, is this the right value proposition we're working on? Because this is what we think it is because you're not giving us great drive. You're saying build all the solution, build it fast, meet these deadlines. We get that. But we want to understand what the real value is so that we make sure we build it in a way that you actually get that exchange value later on that you really, really are looking for. So we think this is it. We backfill it. As a team, you may have to identify the value independent of all the people that should have identified the value (laughs) because you need to know that to make the lots of little decisions you need to make to build the product in a good way. Placeholder value. Yeah. And sometimes if you're on scrum teams with product owners, that's a sign for the product owner that we need to go talk with other product owners and maybe a chief product owner or product owner council, because there's something fundamentally missing here in terms of how we link value from the teams to the greater 
product to the organization's goals and what it's trying to accomplish. I think Earl's absolutely right. In the absence of anything, do the best you can and then present. Sometimes people will say yes, and sometimes people will be like, what? <laughs> it's always easier to work off of something. I always find that some people will tell me, oh, no, that's not what we want. And then try to correct me. But if I ask them from a blank cloth, say, what do you want? They, they, they can't express it. But if I give them saying, here's what we think you want, they'll come back and go, oh, no, that's not quite really what I want. It's like, oh, okay. It's easier to do that back and forth kind of thing than sometimes to ask exactly what they want. When we talk about value identification, that's another trick is just present a value and see what the heck happens. <laughs> and Earl, we're going to do a little podcast on requirements. Requirements modeling at some point about using different models and how they work. Yeah. Yeah. So we can go into things like the domain model in a little more detail if folks are interested yeah. in that. All that kind of stuff. It's one of what I'm working on the outline for, but we'll see. We'll see if that gets pulled off because. We've also invited, um, and we'll make this little picture, some of our clients to come and pitch a podcast with them. Come become a guest of Inspect and Adapt. Tell your story and and have us comment on it and say the good (laughs) things you did and some of the things that went wrong. Put yourself in the hot seat. Hey, we could do a whole year of horror stories, probably. Well, you'd like to have some success stories too. Let's 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 stay that. So, if you've been if you've been hanging out with us this long, you deserve a shot. Jenny, you got your five whys in there as a guiding uh, thought uh, for for folks out there. Earl, do you have anything you want to throw out? You want to toss the last dart? I do, because I just want to keep repeating this over and over until someone actually believes me. (laughs) (laughs) When you're doing any kind of new development work or revised development work, you're doing it because there is an existing solution that someone is unhappy with, that you think you can solve it better than someone else. It could even be an existing solution that's solving the wrong problem, that there's actually a better problem to be solving with the same technology. But you have to understand what that problem is and how what your building is going to solve it better than the alternatives. And to know that, you have to know not only what, who your stakeholder is, you need to understand what utilitarian value they're trying to get, and you need to understand what are the different illities that drive that value that they're looking for in their current solution that they're less than sterilely happy with. Without that, you cannot make good product-level decisions. And, and low-level development decisions are always you know, trying to support higher-level decisions. You can't make a lot of those low-level decisions very well, and you're going to be stuck in tons and tons of meetings having similar discussions over and over again because every one of the teams is going to have to be guessing what that value is, and everyone's probably going to be guessing wrong. Delling your value, at least as a team, is really critically important so you can make as much progress as possible. Boom. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done, Earl. I like that. And on those two great closing mic drop thoughts, we're done. We hope you heard that value-based decisions are so important in successful software creation and delivery. Emotional, aesthetic, utilitarian, and exchange value. Maybe you never clearly identified those bins. Does your organization make utilitarian value decisions for the most part? Or maybe they make exchange value? We hope this podcast stimulates some needed internal conversations in your your group. And then, of course, in the construct shameless self-promotion category... If you'd like to explore whether your value decisions are missing the mark in your development organization or in your environment, 
reach out to us. We have a lot of experiences that can help, as you undoubtedly heard today. In closing, thank you, Jenny and Earl, for that conversation. I learned a lot, and I think we'll close there. So if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on wherever you normally find our podcasts. If you have comments or would like to talk to one of our practitioners, or you have an idea for a future podcast, or better yet, you want to participate with an idea we can explore together, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We really would love to hear from you. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Dap, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host and Earl Beatty as guest and producer. Talk to you again soon, everybody, and have a great next sprint.